Hi, I'm Paul Rudy. Thanks for joining me today. This is my new show, Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes with Mike Hale. Some seems kind of cheesy that you would be the first person I would choose, but my goal in all this, and it's funny because I told Larry Fredrickson, who works here at the radio station, who I've probably known longer than I've known you, and I said, you know, all the years I meet with Mike and talk with him and kid around with him, I don't know all that much about Mike Hale. And so I called him my first victim, and I, Mike was a little bit reluctant to do it. He thought, well, I'd get somebody more interesting, and who could be more interesting than Mike Hale? Mike, welcome to my show, and thanks for giving me this opportunity. Uh, we kind of collaborated on this idea. I had just mentioned um, that I'd, someday I'd be interested in doing a show like this, and you said, oh, funny, you should mention that, and that was quite a few months ago, but thanks for the opportunity. Well, thank you for doing this. this I, I'm, what I'm looking forward to is this is your experimental show, so you'll you'll figure things out, and then beyond, you're going to have some very interesting guests. It seems like you might have some experience in this radio business. You've had how many years? 50. <laughs> 50. I was going to say 40 because my wife on the way out uh, said two things. Don't interrupt Mike too much, and two... Gosh, how old were we when we used to listen to Mike? I said, well, he's not that much older than I am. I said, but my recollection is, and we'll kind of get to your journey here in a okay. second, but I certainly remember you as Mike in the morning, late 70s. Would, yeah, would 78. Correct? 78. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. So before we get to kind of the career journey, uh, the career journey um, I want to step back a little further than that. I have no idea where you grew up and how you grew up. I grew up in, I was born in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, my father was in the military at the time and uh, lived in Baldwin City, Kansas. And then we moved to Kansas City after the Korean War. And my father went to work for Pacific Mutual Life Insurance Company. And he worked there for a number of years and then got transferred to St. Louis. So let's see, when I was in fourth grade we moved to st louis and i stayed in st louis until i graduated from high school and siblings i got a sister okay jane who is an accountant she has her she has a terrific independent accounting business in uh, tucson arizona tucson it's nice to have a relative in tucson Does it she is come out and visit she never visits me anymore. About 20 years ago, she visited me, but we visit her. So. And so now I understand the connection to KC football. Well, yes and no. That's that, that I did live in Kansas City, but this was before the Chiefs came to Kansas City. It wasn't until we moved to St. Louis. And we went to, my dad and I went to a Cardinal football game. It was interesting. But in St. Louis in the 60s, you never saw the Cardinal football games because the Bidwells would not buy up the seats so you could see the games on TV. So we got the Kansas City Chiefs every Sunday afternoon. So that's how I became a Chiefs fan on KSD Channel 5. That's how I became an, an AFL fan. George Blanda, one of the coolest things, I got to meet George Blanda a couple of years before he passed away. He and I talked for 20 minutes. It was one of the coolest meetings I had had with any sports athlete. It was so cool. And speaking of meeting interesting people, did your career uh, allow you to come across some really interesting uh, folks? I, you know, I've been very blessed. The coolest, I didn't get to meet the president, but the coolest thing that I've done was do our morning show at the White House. We were the first music radio station program 
to do their show from the White House. We did it in 1998. Tony Clements, Steve Kelly, Jeff Balding, and myself descended upon the White House. It took us a year of work to be able to get permission to do it. But that was one of the coolest things. So I got to meet, you know, Wolf Blitzer and all these other people, all these correspondents, Peter Mayer, uh, all the correspondents working, and it was, it was a cool time. So you eventually moved to St. Louis, and then that was kind of sort of where you also grew up. When did you land in Champaign-Urbana? I went from St. Louis. Uh, I had a choice to make. I started in radio when I was 16. I had a choice to make whether I was going to stay in St. Louis when I graduated from high school or move to California with my parents. My father got transferred out to Pacific Mutual Life's home office, which was in Newport Beach, California. And uh, I decided to move out there with the family. I was very blessed. I got a job at a radio station in Pomona, California. At 17 years old, I was on the radio in Los Angeles, a real small station in Los Angeles, but I was on the radio in Los Angeles. How cool is that? I, I mean, first of all, I'm glad to hear that you were smart enough to move with mom and dad. If I'm going to Newport, California, <laughs> I'd move there with a stranger. Um, so tell me, like, when I start hearing somebody gets into a radio career and stays with it and they started at 16 and then goes out to California, is probably more difficult and lands a job at 17. Do you just wake up one day saying, I'm a radio guy? No, you know. and How did this happen? My father, when I was four years old, five years old, my father would, anything I was interested in, my father would take me to. For example... I first wanted to be like Broderick Crawford. He had a TV show called Highway Patrol. He was, uh, it was a great television show. I thought I wanted to be a highway patrolman. So we went to the Kansas Highway Patrol headquarters, and I got to spend a half a day. And I'm a five-year-old, you know, getting to climb in police cars and things like that. And then I was interested in being a train engineer. So my father took me to the Kansas City Southern Railroad Yard switch yard and we got to ride in a switch engine for two or three hours and then i said hey i'd like to see what a radio station looks like so at age six my father took me he had a friend of his that sold radio advertising at whb home of the world's happiest broadcasters in kansas city and uh i still i can barely remember but i was so mesmerized at watching a disc jockey work and play music and so on. I was mesmerized. And frankly, from that point forward, that's all I ever wanted to do. And when I was, um, when I was 10, 11, 12 years old, I'd always been, my mother made me be a letter writer. So, you know, I wrote thank you letters, you know, ad nauseum. But it turned out to be a great trait that my mother gave me. Because I would write disc jockeys like Nick Charles in St. Louis, Grant Horton. And I'd say, Mr. Horton, I'm interested in a radio career. Can I come watch you do your morning radio show? And so at 12 years old, I'm, you know, I'm sitting in the back of the studio watching these guys do their radio shows. And you weren't intimidated. I was not intimidated at all. I just thought it was so cool. Because look, and as I got older, I'm thinking here, when I got about 15... Just before I started reading, I'm thinking, what a great job. You work four or five hours a day. You play music. And then you go home. I mean, what's not to like about a career like that? But that was too early to think about. And 
the girls are really going to dig it, <laughs> right? So I want to circle back to this childhood thing. It sounds like you had a glorious childhood. I mean, those are all the things that any child would hopeful parents that would allow them to explore. Uh, you know, some parents won't let their children um, try one thing after another because ultimately they're not going to like everything. And some parents have this hang up of, well, you're a quitter. Uh, I kind of followed that philosophy, my wife and I as well, but I think that's powerful. Did that translate the way that you and Linda, it is Linda, right? Your wife? Right. Uh, I called my son, Daniel. I'll get more into that. Okay. <laughs> Mike's son and my son are roommates <laughs> down in uh, Dallas, Texas. Um, did you follow that with your children? Did you encourage basically whatever Absolutely. direction? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because my father, and I can say this now because the statute of limitations is long gone. My dad hated his job the last 10 years. My dad retired from his job at age 55 because he could. He, uh, he was hired out of the Korean War, and he had a deal that if he worked 25 years, he could retire after 25 years and be able to take retirement and the works. My dad hated his job. And the thing that my dad told me was, don't ever, don't ever continue in a job that you don't like and I've I quit one job eh, two jobs in my life uh, because I didn't like it and uh, that's that that's one of the best things that my dad gave me is that you know you got to be happy in your work you got to enjoy because he said you know there's several times I wished I'd changed careers I think a lot of you know especially we're fairly similar age uh, the generation ahead of us and before that, I think they did. They, I think they hung in there with a lot of tough jobs that they really either not only didn't like that resented, but that's just kind of what you did. That I, was what was expected. I it, mean, you worked for twenty five years at an insurance company, or you worked uh, wherever McDonnell Douglas. You worked there until you retired. That was so. Take me from California to that was the next step. Then the University of Illinois, Champaign-Urbana? No. my Okay, so I go to California. I get hired by this uh, part-time to begin with by this wonderf- wonderful family-owned radio station in Pomona, California, KWOW, KWOW at 1600. And I started there on the weekends, and then I did fill-ins. I did everything. And it was a family-owned radio station. Husband and wife put the radio station on in the 40s. And their two sons, one was a sales manager, one was the operations manager. And an interesting thing happened one day. I come to work in January of 1971, and there are five racks of automation equipment. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, they're going to automate this radio station. And I'm thinking, well, I'm going to be out of a job. So I go see my boss a day later and I go so what's going on here and the owner of the station said you know I'm I'm putting together a situation where I can protect my family if the economy goes south so having automation will help me do it and he looked at me and he said if I was a if I was a guy in your shoes I'd be looking at something like this and become an expert in this area and I thought about that long and hard, and I became, uh, thanks to my boss, I became somebody who was uh, uh, pretty proficient at doing automated radio. 
and how to create automated radio that sounded pretty darn live. My boss was brilliant at it. I was able to hang around him and uh, pick up the knowledge. And when I graduated from uh, Cal State Long Beach, uh, I got recruited by a company in Bloomington, Illinois, called Systems Marketing Corporation. They were a uh, SMC was a automation manufacturer. And so I went to work for them as a technician, but for somebody who could help radio stations learn how to maximize the programming in automation and how to do the different tricks and everything. And it was a job that uh, I traveled all the time. It's a cool job. How did that square with, I always think of you as an on-air personality. Now, obviously, uh, your life has evolved, and you know you're the g- general manager of right WDWS, vice, vice president, vice of, president. Yeah, uh, the big Kahuna is what I call yeah. them around here when we're yeah. off the air. Yeah. Um, how did that? Was there ever that? Okay, I'm going to do this because it keeps me in the industry. But my, I'm. Did you know you were headed towards more of a radio personality, or or was that no? Or is that more a figment figment of my imagination? By the time I remember you as a young person. <laughs> I think of you as an on-air person, but maybe behind the scenes we were missing it. You know, I'm missing the part of the story. Here's what happened. Uh, I was a disc jockey, not a very good disc jockey, I don't think, but I was a disc jockey, uh, and I got so immersed in the automation, and I could do what was called voice tracking in automation, and I became rather proficient at that. Well, after I got done working for the automation company. That's one of the jobs I quit because I didn't like it anymore because I was traveling. I was traveling three and a half weeks out of the month. I had no social life. And after three and a half years, I said, okay, you know. And my new boss said something to me that probably he regretted. And I said, I'm done. I'll see you later. And I was going to take six months off and not do anything and kind of figure out where it was going to go with my career. And Bernie Koval, who was the chief engineer of KFI in Los Angeles, uh, one of the stations that I work with in the automation side of things, said, uh, hey, you're not taking six months off. You're going to come and work for me as my last relief engineer. Well, we're going to get back to that because when I'm going to ask you, we're going to take a break right now. But when we come back, I want to, you know, I want to know if that was a defining moment, if you consider that a defining moment. We'll be back in just a few minutes. All right, so we're getting back now. So you're back at, did I hear that right? You're back in I'm in that? Southern California. You're in Southern California. So you're ping-ponging the earth. Right. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm at KFI. No kids yet. This is roughly when? What this, year? This, now we're 1977. Okay. So that's when I graduated high school, just so you know. I want okay. to just throw that in the timeline there. Um, did that turn out to be an import, important uh, turning point for uh, going out one there of, and yeah, one of, that instead yeah, of? Yeah, one of two important turning points uh, because I, I announced when I came back to California to all my friends, I'm back, I'm never leaving here again. So I worked at KFI, worked at KRLA, worked at Cali, and uh, I, I was very blessed. And I, I'm a very blessed person. Every step in my career, I have worked for the most part very wonderful people who have given me extraordinary opportunities. And what I did for a little over a year in California was an extraordinary opportunity. And then I got a call one day from the sales manager of the automation company 
who said, I'm buying a radio station in Champaign with a guy named Ernie Halls, and we're going to buy this radio station. Would you come and take a look at it and tell me programming-wise what you think we ought to do with it? So I came here. There were eight inches of snow on the ground in January of 1978 and stayed at Jumer's Castle Lodge and uh, listened to the radio market. This radio station was 13th out of 12 rated radio stations. And so I listened to the market, and I gave them a game plan of what I thought they should do. So I go back to California, and I thought, okay, well, that's nice. They paid me some nice dollars to come for the weekend. And then they called me a week later and said, would you be interested in coming to work at our station in Champaign? I said, I would under one condition. You teach me how to sell. Because one of the things I wanted to do was be a salesperson. I wanted to learn how to sell. And when I was at KFI and KRLA, that those opportunities weren't there. And I wanted to learn how to sell. So we, we made a deal that they would teach me how to sell. And I would program the radio station here. And they were buying another one in New Mexico. So I now I've, I've arrived on May 1st. 1978 in Champaign, Illinois. So much for I'm always staying in California. I yeah, see, I see yeah. how. Well, and my boss, my boss at KRLA said, "Okay, when you get this Champaign, Illinois fling over with, uh, I'll hold your job for six months." So, did is that what you think his sense of it was that this yeah, was it, something it, it, that you yeah. need to go sow your oats yeah, in radio yeah. and you'll be back? You'll be back. Yeah, you want to? Yeah. So. And so, tell me about the sales thing because you do have a. Uh, very much a it's not you know real outward it seems like a real natural always in a sales mode and i don't mean that in a negative way i find it quite attractive because you do it i guess honestly it's kind of like it's what you believe where'd that come from what 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 made you see that was it uh, for me to stay in this business it's a necessity or that's just something i plain want or did you see it as a challenge that you wanted to attack i i saw it as as partially a necessity one of the things one of the people i worked with when i was at kfi was loman and barkley who was the top morning team in los angeles and um you know i'd learned from them very quickly they had a lot of sponsors that they worked with and basically it was an insurance policy for them so it didn't make any difference what the ratings did it was what was the income were these guys bringing into the radio station and my mentor harry harrison on the other coast in new york same way i mean he was a guy that was a commercial spokesperson for lots of businesses and he looked at it the same way as uh, you know it's my insurance policy that makes me different than other quote-unquote disc jockeys do you do you feel like you've had the ability to not necessarily see the future but have a pretty good concept that it was changing and it was going to continue to change and that you needed to evolve yeah, absolutely. I, this business is no different than any other business or career path. You know, we are, I was playing records and uh, cartridges. We had we didn't, 1978 didn't even have CDs yet. You know, it's still five years away. Is that pre eight track? <laughs> I, I can't remember eight track. It seemed like that was 76, 77. Yeah, no, that was eight track. Before that was four track, where you'd be listening to a song and then chunk it would uh, go to the next track. And so you're now you're in Champaign-Urbana, you're young, mm -hmm. 
and kind of take me about the evolution there from there to WDWS. Well, here's here's the interesting story. I did not I was not going to be a radio personality when I came here. I was going to be I was the operations manager for the company, supervising over their two stations. I went, when I first got here, I needed to have disc jockeys on the air pretty quickly. We were going to automate the radio station. And this was just... This is K104. Okay. I'm sorry. Yeah, this is okay. 103.9 K104. I remember it well. We were going to automate the radio station. And so what I did that uh, summer was I hired all the PGU jocks because at WPGU, they didn't pay him anything. I was just going to say, you, didn't, they didn't. You, know, you pay so, peanuts, you get monkeys, right? So, you know, <laughs> I, I said, I'll pay you 50 cents over minimum wage. And I had people lining up at the door. Okay. Have no idea what format you're doing. And I said, you know, we're going to automate this thing in the next six months. Well, two things happened. Number one, we didn't automate it because the response to the radio station exploded from the first month. But I'd hired all these people. Nobody wanted to do mornings. So I said, okay, you know, I'll be the morning guy for six, seven weeks until I can find somebody and we get the radio station going. And other than just a little sabbatical that I took, I've been doing mornings in Champaign for 42 years. You just can't shake it. I Yeah, I... You know, I started doing live read commercials early on and uh, and was very blessed to endear myself to uh, several sponsors, Kevin Sullivan at Sullivan Chevrolet, sure. and uh, a guy named John Bargan had the Tinderbox marketplace. Yeah, and I did commercials for him, and I would do commercials for different restaurants and things like that, and... Uh, um, I say this, and I'll say it several more times. I'm very blessed. The audience was very, very, very kind to me. And uh, I, I, I just can't say enough. And it, it extends to today. I, I pinch myself saying how lucky I've been to be able to do this. I wanted to be a disc jockey from the time I was five years old. I, you know, I never thought I was going to be a 40-year-old disc jockey, a 50-year-old disc jockey, or a 60-year-old disc jockey. Well, that's funny how life turns out. But, you know, I get this theme that you really, every time you talk about many of the places you work seem to be family-owned operations or, or sort of like that. Is that why it seems like even right now you pinch yourself? Because I've met some of the folks that currently own the radio station and the news newspaper are we back at that family owned family mentality you know i i've never gotten away from i i, I think i'm blessed that we've never been away from the family mentality because when when bill ehrman and ernie halls ernie was an insurance guy up in rantoul who had invested in a lot when he and bill put the radio station on the air and bought the radio station. Uh, it was it was a family environment because Bill's wife was the bookkeeper, and it it was uh, you have a camaraderie with the in in radio. There's a, just a great camaraderie, and even when they sold the radio station to a guy in Washington D.C., he kept that uh, that family camaraderie because he had uh, 
he had a brother that was involved with this. And I, when you're in a small operation like this is, in the whole grand scheme of things, you you, you have tend to, tendency to have a family feel. When I came to DWS in 2000, it had a family feel within that building. You know, I, Ed Bond, who I had known for 20 years, 15, 20 years. Wow, it had been 20 years. I mean, it was like, you know, I was excited to be able to work with Ed and others, people that I'd known in the marketplace. So it always had that family feel. Now, with our new owners, uh, yeah, it is really a family feel because, you know, I was just uh, on the phone with our CEO down in West Frankfurt earlier today. And, uh, you know, he's asking all sorts of questions about what's going on with my son in Dallas and, you know. Is, oh, I can is, tell you all about that. I, I'm sure you can. And I'm not sure I want to know all of it. But uh, I'm not going to start talking out of school, believe me. Okay. I, I don't know what my son Daniel does down there. <laughs> well, I can share some. <laughs> I'm sure we can swap stories after the show, but, Mike. No, this, this ownership change, it's once again, and I'm going to use the word again, blessed. Uh, John Reed, who was the uh, CEO of News Gazette Media, and the News Gazette Media Board and the Stivic Foundation Board worked very hard to make sure that when the company was sold, it would be put in the hands of uh, people who had a like vision for local media. And um, the Community Media Group, our parent company, has 40 newspapers around the country that all make money doing local local news local oriented this is their first radio stations that they've owned and uh are they would you say their first experience in radio so far or is this an awkward time because of the virus and and all those issues you know this for our ceo this is not his first radio our ceo when he graduated from college he thought he was going to be in radio so he invested in a radio station with several other guys in Erie, Pennsylvania. They owned the station for three or four years. So his first experience was in radio. Then he went to print and has done that the last 50 years. And he's excited to be involved in radio again. And so, you know, because he'll tell me, oh, it's just great to have a radio conversation with somebody. So my, my observation is, in, in the in the past owners would find people or you know was, I guess it was a foundation but mm-hmm. you know the management group find people but it seems to have lifted the spirits a bit there seems to be more of the animal spirits and entrepreneurial spirit is kind of uh, you know come back a little more alive right well and the leadership from uh from paul barrett who's the guy on the ground here who came out of retirement for the company to help them transition this is uh, you know he uh um, he's a he's an exciting guy to be around, and uh, you know we've done so many things in the first months of dinner because we needed to be out of the building in downtown. So we had the project of moving to the new studios, and uh, it's so so. Now here we are. Uh, you're the vice president and basically the person in charge of the radio station. What does that entail? What kind of responsibilities, kind of in a nutshell? Like, what is your, okay, uh, 
When we get back, I want to start probing Mike a little bit about what his responsibilities are at WDWS. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. Is this going the way you wanted it to go? Love it. Making it real easy for me. Okay. Welcome back. I'm here with Mike Hale, general manager and vice president of. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm here with Mike. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Do we need to write out your name? No, but would I say welcome back? I'm Paul Rudy. Welcome back. I'm Paul Rudy with Paul Rudy's 52 Minutes with Mike Hale today. And uh, pleased to have Mike Hale, who's the general manager and vice president of WDWS. We were just starting to go into what your responsibilities are like. You know, I come in here maybe a couple, two, three hours a month, so I don't really get to see Mike at work. What are, what are the basic blocking and tackling responsibilities that you have running a radio station? You know, the great thing about this radio station and the previous radio station I had the great honor to be the operations manager of for a long time is that we're surrounded by great people. I have, I have outstanding people who make me look good every day. So it's my job, in a nutshell to make sure they've got the tools and the vision to get the job done. It seems like when you get into that management role, which you've been in a long time, I've always thought of it as 80% of your problems talk back, but yet the turnover here at WDWS is unnoticeable. It is. Uh, it, Why once, do you think that is? I think we have a fun working environment, number one. But number two, we're doing a lot of local radio here. Um, uh, we have a strong news department. We have a news talk station in DWS that uh, has outstanding talent. We also happen to have Fighting Illini Sports. Uh, you know, we, I like to think these radio stations are very much a fabric of the community. And I think that's what attracts people to work here and enjoy working here. And this is, and they, there's several lines they hear from me all the time. And one of the things I remind people when, when they get, you know, amped up something that, that bothers them, I just remind everybody, you know, we're not doing brain surgery here. This is, this is radio and, uh, you know, we've got to enjoy it. And, and we have people that enjoy what they're doing. And people that want to, they're the young mics, they're five years old, thinking they want to get into the radio business in some format. Do you have any advice for those people? Is it, is it, is it even a good business to go into, in your view, in the future? I think it is. And I, I talk to college students all the time about this particular subject. And I tell them, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any difference what profession you're going into you've got to have a sales mentality you know you don't have to be and i appreciated your kind compliment about how i approach sales you don't have to be a you know yeah, yeah. A beat them sale you just got to know how to sell yourself how to sell uh concepts how to sell ideas how to get people interested and excited about things. And that's the thing. I mean, everybody, you know, if I had, 
You know, if I went back in history and had the opportunity to be a disc jockey four or five hours a day on the radio and make real good money, I would have done this for the last 50 years. But it just it wasn't the reality. And I tell people, you know, there's an opportunity for you to be on the air, but, the, but you've also got to support yourself and support the organization in other areas. A lot of people don't get that. I mean, in all, in all facets of business, I don't think everybody realizes without revenues coming in and without sales bringing in those revenues, none of our jobs are any good. I have a real, another one of the lines I have, this is a sales organization that respects the product. In other words, we have a balance between what the sales needs are, what the product needs are. So we will not put something on the radio just because a client wants it and the, and and if it doesn't um, if if it doesn't match what the goals of the product are and doesn't deliver on listener expectations, we're we're not going to do it. So it's it's a it's a balancing act. And I become a referee sometimes in that area, and I and I enjoy that. Give me an example, like a referee, if you can give one without naming names. Just kind of a conceptual. If somebody, if somebody, a lot of times we will get promotions that you know they want us to give something away or what have you that doesn't exactly reflect uh the the community got it as a whole and and what we want to uh display ourselves okay in. you said it i was going where i was going next so perfect segue community you're involved in a lot of organizations and have been throughout the years as long as i can remember uh out of all the outside organizations say of the what which two would you say you know the most people, and why is it that that's the case? Oh, my gosh. Which two organizations do I know the most people? Oh, wow. I, I, I've been – this goes back to when I was on the boys and uh, – this is before the Boys and Girls Club. There was just a girls club here in town. Tony Clements and I – were on that board together and Fanny Taylor was the director that was that was the one of the first organizations that I was on a board on that I got to really enjoy and I felt like I made a difference the next organization that I was asked to be on the board was the Eastern Illinois Food Bank and I was the dumbest guy on that board all 3 years I was on the board it was over the the Eastern Illinois Food Bank was so blessed to have Michael Pollack as one of the guys driving that organization because that organization in the late 80s into the early 90s had some very interesting challenges. And uh, so I've enjoyed that. I've enjoyed I've been on the Salvation Army board for 26 or 27 years. You must I've be a general that. by now. <laughs> I you know, I've been blessed to be on the United Way board. The University of Illinois Campus Charitable Fund Drive, uh, I got asked to be on that one year with Tony, and it was usually a one-year appointment where they bring somebody from the community to be involved. I got to be on that for 20. They kept asking me year after year. I got to be on that for 20, 20 years. So I probably met the most people in that particular organization because and that particular board because i got to meet chancellors and 
presidents and have great conversations with them. You mentioned a name that you and I both have in common, and I'm, I regretfully state I wish I would have kept up a relationship with Tony Clements because what an impact he had in my brother's life and my life. Because when we moved to Urbana in 1967, we thought Urbana Park District was the country club. At least that's what our dad told us. And who was our counselor, our first counselor? Tony Clements. And our family adopted him and loved him. I can't say that we kept up much of a relation. I mean, he had such an impact on my brother's lives and my life. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on about Tony, but you had really a lifelong or many multi-years or decade uh, relationship with Tony and what a wonderful human being he was. I'm interested to kind of how did that happen? It sounds like you collided at a board meeting. We collided. No, this was before that. Um, I'm, I had met him. This is like 1981. I had met him uh, at some university function. And then a week later, he heard me mention the Kansas City Chiefs on the radio. And the next time I saw him, he said, I didn't know you were a Chiefs fan. He says, I've been a Chiefs fan, too, since I lived in North Carolina. And the same reason, because he could see the Chiefs on TV, on NBC, where he lived in North Carolina. So that kind of got our conversation. And I said, hey, why don't you come down, you know, why don't you come down and be on the radio with me one day? So he came down, was on the radio with me. And then I um, judged a thing called The Bong Show. I remember it. And uh, at Follinger Auditorium. And it's, that's where I met Willard Broom and Lonnie Clark. The wow, three of two us, great men. Wow. Yes. We, the three of us were judges for the last five years that thing ran. But so I would have, I started having Tony on the radio. He would make uh, football predictions. Uh, we, you know, he, if there was anything to pick, I would have him down. Kentucky Derby, Indianapolis 500. I mean, we just we just did goofy stuff on the radio. And then I took Tony to England with us one time to do the morning show. And it was a wild, wild radio time. So he and I did several years of doing radio in England and Scotland. And as I mentioned on the top, at the top of the show, we did the White House together. But the thing about Tony Clements, and we had a great time on the radio, we had just outstanding discussions because he's the most creative guy. He absolutely the most creative guy I ever met in my entire life. Well, he was a special guy as a child. I mean, you know, there's just certain things that stick out in your mind. And he was just fat, I mean, flat funny. Uh, he might say fat funny, but, uh, uh, you know, I just remember him doing the JoJo Crummy show oh, yeah. at, at Yankee Ridge <laughs> in 1967 or 8 or 9. And we'd always have the turkey bowl uh, on Thanksgiving. We'd all run down to the Yankee Ridge school and it's cold outside and doing that. It was a special guy. How did, you guys were really close. Uh Towards the end of his life, I mean, you were there, right? Yeah. You, you you played a pretty, I would say, as an outsider, pretty significant role. Um, how has it impacted you after, now that he's gone? I have a philosophy, and and this comes from this comes from my mentor Harry Harrison, and his philosophy is every day should be unwrapped like a precious gift. And, you know, we get so hung up in so many things 
Uh, we have so many distractions, so many interruptions that a lot of times we forget that every day should be unwrapped like a precious gift. And Tony and I had talked about, we'd, we'd done so many things together, but we had talked about things we were going to do when I retired. He retired early, um, and you know we just talked about the things that we were going to do when we were retired. And sometimes we put those things off and we wait yeah. so often i i'm in the retirement planning business and i see yeah. clients putting stuff off as if tomorrow is inevitable right. and you know life is precious and you know tomorrow is promised to no person you I know used to one say of no our, man but i think now i have to say person one of our one of our favorite lines is and, and tony and i's lines were very simple you want to make god laugh tell him your plans yeah I, you know i've heard it uh, similar to that as well now two children your wife linda right and two children christopher and jennifer right where are they okay. i know where christopher is i know where to find him my my son christopher is in dallas texas um he moved down there a year ago he is roommates with uh, <laughs> sunday and these two guys are having a great time they're they're having an outstanding time, uh, but he's in the banking business down there in commercial lending. My daughter always wanted to be a school teacher, and she is a second grade teacher at Barkstall Elementary. My wife, who, frankly, uh, when we go when we go to the store or something like that, more people come up to her than they come up to me, uh, because she worked with Dr. Roger Powell. Uh, and they started the infertility practice together at Carl. And there are a lot of children walking on the face of this earth that Dr. Powell and my wife had a hand in making it happen. Well, I know both your children, and I would say a credit to, I'll credit your wife. But Absolutely. I really, when I, when I see extraordinarily sharp, kind, nice, considerate kids, children, I should say. My mom used to get mad at me when I said kids. Uh, those are goats. Uh, when I see that to me that is the ultimate measure of success and successful parents so I give you credit for that well Mike I appreciate you I've had Mike Hale vice president and general manager of WDWS on Paul Rudy's 52 minutes with Mike Hale today it'll be 52 minutes with somebody else next time uh, genuinely appreciate you taking the time to kind of coach me through my first show and I appreciate the opportunity thank you so much I'm I'm very honored thank you we'll be back in a couple of weeks <laughs>